Hello and welcome to the Life Together podcast, where we share in meaningful conversation about living for Christ and loving one another. Thanks for joining today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to part two of our conversation about the Holy Spirit. If you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, um, you can find that if you just scroll down in Apple or Spotify or whatever you're using and should be able to find that there. You might find that helpful before we get into today's discussion, but we do want to start with just a quick review, quick recap of where we've been. Uh, so uh, joining today again is uh, Darrell Dobbins. He's he's back with us. So welcome, Darrell, and catch us up to speed. Thank what did you. we talk about last time as we transition into uh, part two? Yeah, well, just as a quick reminder, last time we talked about the meaning of the Hebrew word ruach, and uh, we talked about the introduction of the concept in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where the Spirit of God is introduced as hovering over the surface of the water. Uh, That word makes another appearance in the Garden of Eden as God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and that phrase, cool of the day, includes something about the Spirit. Uh, It it also, the word also uh, is mentioned in respect to the presence of God with his people, and we find the, the presence of God filling the temple as he did the tabernacle. And uh, then also in the Old Testament, he empowered specific leaders, the Holy Spirit coming in upon specific leaders, uh, gave them certain powers that allowed them to carry out the uh, whatever mission God sent them on. So this is spoken of often in the case of the judges. It's spoken of often in the case of the kings, especially King David. And David obviously really valued his relationship with the Spirit. And when he committed his sin with Bathsheba, one of his great concerns was that the Holy Spirit not be taken from him. So it uh, was an indicator, I think, in David's mind of the closeness of his relationship with God. We also talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit in prophecy and pointed out some uh, interesting passages in the, among the prophets, including Isaiah and Ezekiel, where Um, it's forecasted that the Holy Spirit would be given to God's people in a future messianic era. And so that's kind of where we left it. We hinted about Jesus being the person upon whom the Holy Spirit was conferred most completely after his baptism and how that uh, showed up a little bit in his life. But um, I think uh, Jesus is probably a great place to start today, huh, Jarrett? Yeah, yeah, I think think that sounds great. Yeah, in the Old Testament, we see uh, the Spirit being this life-generating force from the very beginning, the Spirit hovering over the waters. And then we see the Spirit filling uh, certain places like the temple and then particular people, and then ultimately this messianic figure in places like Isaiah 61, where we read about the anointed one on whom the Spirit of the Lord is is going to, to, to be upon, and he's going to bring good news to the poor, and he's going to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and to comfort all those who mourn. And then we realized if those words sound familiar, it's because those are the words of Jesus in Luke 4 when he's in the synagogue and he turns to this very same passage in Isaiah 61 and reads that and he says, today, this scripture is beginning to be fulfilled in your hearing. And so in the mind of Jesus, just like you're saying, in in his mind and in the understanding of the New Testament, he is the anointed one, empowered by the Spirit to redeem humanity and to recreate this whole ruined world. And with all of that, how do we see the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of the Lord in relation to Jesus kind of throughout his life? Yeah. Well, very early, in, as Jesus begins starting his ministry, we talked about last time the Spirit descending in the form of a dove and lighting on Jesus. Um, whereas before, 
all of the anointed ones were anointed with oil that represented the Spirit. Now we have the actual Spirit descending on Jesus. So that's a, that's a big change. That's a change that was palpable when now there's no longer a necessity for a stand-in oil of anointing when the Spirit himself is actually present. Uh, and then uh, Jesus is immediately led away by the Spirit into the wilderness. But in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, we begin to see a different usage of the word temple, which is very interesting. Uh, Jesus said, and this is kind of a, just a note in passing, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, uh, talking to the Jews. And, of course, this was puzzling to everyone around him. Um, they even ridiculed him a bit, saying, you know, this temple was 40 years in the making. How are you going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? But the disciples later, after Jesus was resurrected on the third day, came to realize that he was talking about the, quote, temple of his body. Now, that's a different usage of the word temple we've never seen before because the temple was always a physical structure and the Spirit of God was there. But now the Spirit of God is in a person. So the temple is being referenced as Jesus's body. Mm -hmm. And this is foreshadowing a time coming when Christians would be regarded as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes that very clear in a couple of verses that we'll probably see later on. Yeah, I like the way that Lawrence put it in his sermon probably a couple months back on the Holy Spirit. But he said, from cradle to grave to crown, the Holy Spirit was Christ's closest companion. And I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, in uh, his conception, his baptism, the temptation in the wilderness, th all throughout his ministry, in his death, resurrection, ascension, the Holy Spirit is constantly at work in each of those moments in Jesus' life. And so Jesus lived by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And another way that Lawrence put it in, in the sermon, which I, th I thought was really good, is uh, you have the eternally loving Father who uh, pours forth his love to the Son. And the Holy Spirit is something like the presence of that love between them. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is no less of a person, um, but maybe some of the passage that we get to will even indicate how uh, the, the Spirit almost has this kind of, if we can put it this way, this almost elastic kind of effect where though Jesus is buried in the grave, Death cannot keep him because the Holy Spirit is like binding him to the Father. Mm -hmm. And it and it almost the way that, again, Lawrence put it, almost having this, if you can imagine, this sort of elastic effect through which the power of the Spirit, Christ, rises again. That's one way of, uh, of, of thinking about that um, in an illustrative um, word picture. But anyway, so we see that the Holy Spirit is this, this close companion throughout Jesus' life, and this is how he lives. He walks by the Spirit. But what's really cool is in John 7, Jesus makes this incredible promise. He says, uh, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit in reference to the living water, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then he puts it another way, just one more instance of this among many. John 14, in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
And so he makes this incredible promise, uh, not just notice to the uh, apostles, but to all those who believe. But the question is, okay, what does this mean? You know, he describes the Spirit as this life-generating water, this living water that will be poured into us and flow through us. He talks about the Spirit dwelling with us and in us. And all of that is is super cool and inspiring language. But, like, what what does that really mean for us today? Well, it's interesting that in John 7, and, and just as an aside— John has a lot more to say about the Holy Spirit than the other writers of the Gospels. Not only in his Gospel, but also in 1 John has quite a bit to say about the Holy Spirit. Uh, But he refers to the Holy Spirit as uh, rivers, flowing rivers of living water. Um, And I think that there is a connection here with the life-giving force of the Spirit as he brings Jesus back from the dead. rivers of living water. So the Spirit imparts life. Uh, Romans 8 says he imparts life to our mortal bodies um, and outflowing out from us then as a result of that are river, these rivers of living water. So we become sources of life to those around us. So when we walk by the Spirit, when we're minding the things of the Spirit, we are living in the Spirit the people around us will sense it because life is flowing into us and life is flowing out of us. This is about the strongest argument for evangelism I think the scriptures make, mm. <laughs> is that, mm. that uh, Christians become not just recipients of this living water, but out of us also flows that same issue of living water. That's very powerful to me. Yeah, I think so too. And it reminds me of John 4, where Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he starts talking about living water. And by the end of the story, it's like that living water has, in fact, transformed her. And what does she do? She runs into the city and says come and see this man who's told me all that I've ever done. And so it, it, the living water in that instance does have that effect. It changes her, and then people notice that uh, by her, her life. And, and they even say at the end of that story, now it's not just because you have said in your testimony, but we've seen for ourselves and we know that this, uh, that this is um, the one who's coming to the world. So so interesting how, how we see that actually play out. And again, all throughout John, we see that. But what else about this idea of the, of the Spirit uh, being with us today? Well, it, specifically here in chapter 7, um, he tells us when this was going to happen. So some very specific information that comes out of these verses. Whoever believes in me, that's the who, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the when um, believers would receive the Holy Spirit is connected directly to the glorification of Jesus. And of course we know when that happened, It was when he was resurrected from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 tell us very clearly that when God raised Christ from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. So at that time, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, that was the time at which the Spirit was given to those, uh, whoever, he says, believes in me. Luke chapter 11 that we already looked at uh, a minute ago, um, if you ask the question, to whom is he given? He says specifically to those who ask him. So it implies that someone is seeking after God, someone who's inquiring to God for the Holy Spirit, and someone who uh, has a heart of belief. And so when that person believes and he has a heart of belief, has a, has a 
inquiring for the Spirit, God will impart his Spirit to him. Mm. So there's this conversation about imparting the Spirit, and it's talked about in different ways. The Spirit will be with you, and then sometimes it's described as being in you. And I think when, when a lot of people hear that, that some of those phrases, like the Spirit will be in you, He will dwell in you, there's both some confusion and maybe even a little bit of hesitation and uh, a little bit of uh, skepticism about, okay, what exactly does that mean? And so maybe taking some of these instances about what Jesus has promised and moving into the rest of the New Testament, what does it mean for the Spirit to be in us, and, and what exactly is the Spirit up to? Yeah. Well, um, so I, I see those as kind of two different questions. Uh, one is, uh, is the Spirit in fact in us, or is this just kind of a of a offshoot of the character of God that comes through reading His Word? Um, a lot of the New Testament could be read that way. If you had the the uh, a predisposition that the Spirit is only in us through the Word, a lot of the New Testament could be read that way. But there are some specific verses that are very hard to read that way. And if you focus on those, you'll, you'll read things like uh, Acts chapter 5 and verses 30 to 32 where the disciples, uh, the apostles had come under persecution by the council. They're being brought in before the council to explain why they're still teaching the gospel when they've been told not to. And the apostles explain, you killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him. You can repent and receive forgiveness. The apostles are all witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 32, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So it's very personal. It's a person being given to those who are obedient to Christ. Uh, several passages in the New Testament talk in the same language. Romans chapter 5, who has been given to us. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Romans chapter 3, verse 16, God's Spirit dwells in you. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. All of these, they just mount to a very clear picture of a presence of the very Spirit of God dwelling in Christians. And if you ask, as many people do, how is that possible? How can a spirit dwell in a living being? Well, the temple and the tabernacle were given us as examples for how that can happen. Yeah. God's presence dwelt somehow, it's a spiritual presence, dwelt in a physical location. So we're being grown up to realize that, that the Spirit of God, a spiritual being, can take on uh, resi take up residence in a, in, in a physical being. And in the case of Jesus, <clears throat> uh, Him being now the temple, and in the case of Christians, we now being the temple of God, the temple of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in us in the same way He dwelt in the temple, the tabernacle, in those former days, in the same way He dwelt in Jesus. And I might suggest, by the way, that it's perhaps the same way that our own spirit dwells in us. Yes, we, right. we are a being of dual nature. We have a physical aspect and a spiritual aspect. And somehow, uh, and I can't explain to you the mechanics of it, but we have a spiritual presence and a physical body there too. Yeah. So that raises um, kind of an interesting question. And I think it could be, this question could be asked by someone outside the church, an unbeliever, or by someone who is skeptical of the indwelling of the Spirit today and has maybe some reservations about that. A question that someone might ask is, well, what, what makes the Spirit different from, say, someone's conscience? So 
we can take that first from kind of an unbeliever's perspective. Okay, you Christians, you're talking about this idea of the Spirit dwelling in you and maybe how it helps you make decisions and whether you think, you know, some people might even say they feel like something is pressed on them by the Spirit in a decision that they're making, or they might just say, generally speaking, I trust based upon God's Word that the Spirit, okay, you say all of that, but... Um, how do you know that's not just your conscience at work, right? You, you're a part of this uh, spiritual group. You've had these spiritual experiences, so maybe that's shaped your conscience in a certain way. Um, what would you say to a person who's kind of uh, uh, equating spirit in, in, in just someone's conscience? I would say, first of all, that I, uh, coming from the hard sciences and— uh, being exposed to quite a lot of empiricist thinking over the years, uh, have a great sympathy for that point of view. Um, uh, probably not all that different from the way I thought for many years. Uh, that um, it, it's it's more or less the the skeptic's idea of well, prove it to me and I'll believe it. Well, you know, the, this is this is something that we accept by faith. It's not something, I mean, I can't show you a spirit. We can't, we can't assign physical dimensions to it. We can't weigh it. We can't, uh, we can't uh, pass a light beam through it and see how it changes as it goes through. You know, um, we're, we're just simply told by God that we have the Spirit of God in us and that it provides us and that He provides us with certain benefits and he even tells us what many of those benefits are. Um, I can't prove that to anyone. I can only say that without the Spirit of God, because I believe that without the Spirit of God, I wouldn't have those benefits, not the least of which is a guarantee of eternal life. Right. The Spirit is our guarantee that we'll have eternal life. How can I prove that to you? Well, I can't. I believe by faith that it's true because God told me that he is the, the identifier, essentially, the seal upon me that, uh, that um, assigns me to, uh, us, to an eternity that I would be lacking without him. Yeah. I remember just a couple Wednesday nights ago, um, Chase Kelly talked about kind of his, his story of how he came to Christ. And in, in many ways, it was probably very similar to most Christians who, who grew up, say, on the pews. It, it felt very similar to, to my own story. But what he said after I thought was so powerful, how he talked about the first, he was, he was confronted with this decision. I forget exactly what it was, but it was something that um, in the past, his conscience knew what was wrong. Um, and he was in this situation after having been baptized and having received the Spirit, and he noted how it was the first time that uh, he not only was aware of the right and wrong choice, but now there was an, an impetus to, to do the right thing, a newfound move toward what is right and good, a, de a deep desire to choose what was right. And I, I thought that was a very helpful um, personal story to share. And I think there's something to that. When, when believers or unbelievers talk about the Spirit and their conscience, I, I, I think that is the, one of the key differences, that uh, a person's conscience identifies right and wrong, but the Spirit helps to create a desire uh, to actually do what is right. Um, and along with that, I think in the Old and New Testament, what we see is, like you mentioned, man's spirit and uh, coming to, to, to an alignment with God's spirit. And I'm, I talk with my hands a lot, so people can't see my hands, but I'm doing an aligning <laughs> motion, if you can imagine it. But like God's spirit working in the world and the spirit, the breath that is in us, uh, becomes more and more conformed to that. And that is a profound evidence in a person's life of 
the spirit actually doing its work in them. And it's so beautiful to see and so powerful when we as Christians begin to notice that in ourselves. And it's almost like you look in the the mirror and it's like, I don't know that there's no way that I've become this person by my own wisdom or right choices or just innate character or influences in my life. Like something else has brought me to where I am. And that doesn't mean that by any means we're saying we're perfect or we're completely conformed into the image of Christ, but there's a, a palpable difference and that that any honest believer would would say there's no way I can attribute that to myself. Um, you hear this most starkly, I think, in in uh, longtime drug addicts who, uh, after a conversion, uh, experience a freedom from their addiction that they never experienced before. This is a, an eminently biblical concept, um, and just to to uh, to nail this down a little bit, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 reads like this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, this dispenses with any notion that the Spirit just takes over and you can't sin anymore. No, that's not the case. He says, because of all this, we're debtors to live not according to the flesh. And then in verse 13, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, now notice the phraseology, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does that mean? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. The Spirit has something to do with helping you in putting to death the deeds of the body. It's done by the Spirit. You see the same kind of language in 2 Corinthians, and I'm turning over there right now to chapter 3 and verse 16. There he says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil, that is, the, uh, was associated with the law of Moses that prevented people from beholding the glory of God. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, now he's talking about us Christians, he says, we, now we can behold the glory of the Lord, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Our level of glory is being elevated because now we have the ability to look right into the glory of God. And then he says, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and some of them don't read quite so clearly. But if you read from the uh, English Standard Version, this is all connected back to the Spirit of God that gives us the capacity to, be, to make this transformation. So now we have two very clear passages that talk about transformation as emanating from power that is given to us by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God allows us to be transformed into something that we were not before. It doesn't make us better than somebody else. It makes us better than we ourselves would have been without His presence. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. It doesn't make us better than someone else, than anybody else, but makes us better than who we would have been without the work of the Spirit. That's a really, really helpful way of putting it. Um, any other passages that you want to incorporate into that as far as what the the Spirit is doing before we kind of move toward the telos? Sure. Well, um, the Spirit in Romans chapter 8 again, and Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful catalog of benefits that come from our relationship with the Spirit of God. But Romans chapter 8, verses 26-27 um, there we see that, that the Spirit is a kind of intercessor. And spe the specifically, the role that the Spirit plays here is in our communication with God. I kind of think of it 
I spent many years in China as a missionary, and I always had translators to translate my lessons so that the audience would understand me. Um, without that interpreter, I would have been, no one would have understood a word that I said, for the most part. But because I had an interpreter, we could communicate freely with each other. And that seems to be the role the Spirit is playing here. I'm reading from Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 26, where he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have the Spirit who is connected with our spirit, and it is taking our thoughts, even thoughts that we can't express in words, thoughts that are too deep for words, and expresses those accurately to the Father. He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, so he understands what the Spirit is saying, and then uh, God in in. In turn, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So the upshot of all this is that because we have this interpreter present with us, we have this connection with God in prayer, even though it might be unspoken. And because of that connection, all things are going to work together for our good doesn't mean everything's going to go swimmingly, doesn't mean every day's going to be a happy one, but ultimately all things are working together for our good because we have a Father who understands and is connected to us. Yeah, That's so beautiful, and that has profoundly shaped my personal prayer life. There were so many moments that I can remember where I felt like I had no idea what to pray. Um, how to pray. And I would look at uh, Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount or in other instances, and I would look at these other prayers in the Bible, but then I would, when I would pray, I would just feel like I didn't know what I was doing and that maybe I was just doing it all wrong. And this passage has helped me so much because it's helped me realize, well, there's there's not like a right way to pray. It's trusting that when you pray, the Spirit is interceding with us with a groaning that's too deep for words. And if I look into the Old Testament or the New Testament and I read the prayers of Moses or David or Nehemiah or of Paul, and I'm wowed by that, just imagine the prayers that the Spirit is offering up on our behalf. And it's not just with eloquent words, but with a groaning that's too deep for words. And it's so it's so beautiful. It really helped me in, in, in praying. Um, but yeah, the Spirit works as, uh, we could say, uh, a divine translator of sorts that helps our connection and communication with the Father. Um, uh, so good. What what else kind of uh, goes into that? I mean, Romans eight is is uh, chocked full of amazing amazing blessings of the Spirit. But what other things uh, are a part of that? Well, um, time would fail us if to talk about all of the things that are cataloged that the Spirit of God does in us. Um, he active, actively transforms us. He actively intercedes for us, as we've said. He's actively a witness for us. He witnesses, for example, that we are the children of God. His Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. He leads us, and there are many references in the New Testament that talk about being led by the Spirit. If we're walking in the, according to the Spirit, let us, we're led by the Spirit, in Galatians 5. He seals us for the day of redemption. He guarantees our inheritance. Um, he imparts fellowship between us and God. Um, he's the agent of several actions of God. It, we're told that 
God gives life through the Spirit, gives us life through the Spirit in Romans 8, 11. Uh, we receive through him the spirit of adoption, whereby we can say, dear Father, to God. Uh, and he is, you might say, the funnel through which the love of God is poured into us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know the mechanics of that either, but somehow the Spirit is instrumental in introducing the love of God into the heart, into the center of affections of man, the Holy, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit is given to us, and the purpose for having the Holy Spirit is so that the love of God can be poured into us. I th find that that God is um, doing something with us there that we can be scarcely be aware of, but that is so important to, um, to our identity and our comfort as children of God. Yeah, I love that Ephesians passage, Ephesians 3, this prayer that Paul prays on behalf of that church and by extension to us today. And that's such a powerful line, beautiful line. Um, he prays that we be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, you, you can hardly think of a more beautiful and eloquent prayer prayed uh, by, by anyone, but um, the idea being that the Spirit works as this um, to, to create this space within our hearts to actually receive God's love. Or another way that I heard it put was uh, the, the Spirit acts almost as if it's like the, the divine the way that they put it was the uh, mucilage, but that's an old-fashioned word, the divine glue, so that the truth of God's love actually sticks. Like it's so easy for people to have the, the truth and the love of God, the gospel, to go in one ear and out the other. But here it's almost as if Paul is praying for God to, to strengthen us by the power of the Spirit in order to actually grasp that love in an experientially rich way. Which leads to an interesting question. How, how does that, that work? Sometimes when, uh, another question that often comes up, I think, with the Spirit is not just the Spirit and conscience, but the Spirit and my personal experiences and my emotions and feelings. Um, kind of guide us, navigate that, that path a little bit for us as far as how does the Bible speak to that, our personal experiences and perhaps even our, our feelings and emotions and intuitions in regard to our relation with the Spirit being in us? Yeah, that's a, always an interesting question because this is part, part of what's scary to um, the um, sort of the empiricist who needs to to sort of uh, experience everything through the five senses. Um, and so people actually even empiricize the Spirit by saying, well, I feel the Spirit moving within me. There's really not a scripture that, that tells us to expect that kind of a tangible feeling connected to the Spirit. Um, there's not a passage that talks about the Spirit taking us over and causing us to act in irrational ways or in ways that are outside of our control. In fact, Paul speaks very much the opposite to us in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he tells us that we are to ultimately saying, control yourself and do things decently and in order. And the spirits of the prophet, prophets are subject to the prophets. You can control this. Yeah. Yeah, which, by the way, to me makes so much sense. Like, if the Spirit in the very beginning, the Ruach, is that which creates and brings order out of chaos, mm -hmm. it would make sense that if in our life and in the indwelling of the Spirit in us, that it would create uh, 
order in yeah. our lives out of what would otherwise perhaps be chaos on multiple multiple levels. I but. think that's a very, very uh, insightful point. Uh, you wouldn't expect him to all of a sudden start creating chaos since he's been an ordering force in, in the world and in people's lives uh, throughout uh, our history, our knowledge of him. Um, but he, his presence is something to be desired and, um, <clears throat> for example, um, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, uh, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you have this spirit in you, and you're trying to be a, an adequate temple for the Holy Spirit, and so you're trying to maintain the kind of space that the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell in. But by acting in certain ways, we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit and uh, make him sorry, right. that, uh, almost that, that uh, probably not that he has a relationship with us, but, but sorry that you've taken this turn that has so injured the yeah. relationship with with him, yeah, I've, I've, uh, that's that's a really curious passage to me, and I was kind of um, meditating, I guess, on on that idea. And he says the same thing back in chapter one about how you've been sealed with with the promised spirit, mm-hmm. and in relation to this day of redemption that's to come. But this idea of sealing, you know, is like a um, we could think of it as maybe a, a stamp is a more familiar concept for us today. Uh, you might stamp a, a note or a letter um, sealed with that signet ring. And I think Paul is is borrowing that language to describe how the Spirit is set as this seal to show, like, you truly do belong to God. You have His signet ring impressed on you, your heart, your character, your spirit. Um, and it also implies this continued ongoing work of making us increasingly like the one to whom we belong. And it seems like part of what's going on in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, when he talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, is, I mean, if you look at it, it is surrounded by all kinds of things that go against the work of a spirit in a person's life. Stealing, um, corrupting talk, uh, falsehood, all of these different things, and then he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's as if he's saying, like, the Spirit is doing all, is is using all of his power to transform you into the image of God. And don't, don't slow him down in that process. Like, let him, let him have his way with you. Let him work in your life. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't get in the Holy Spirit's way by going back to these old patterns of living that can alter, that can slow down, or that can perhaps completely stop the, the work of the Spirit molding you and shaping you as this creative force into the image of God that you were always intended to be. You're, you're almost saying what Paul said in Galatians 5.25, where he said, if we live by the Spirit, let's also keep keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So <clears throat> having the Spirit in us uh, compels us um, to to keep step with the Spirit who, who's uh, trying to, to lead us in the right path. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in relation to our experience and perhaps our, our feelings, intuitions, we shouldn't necessarily sit around expecting that the Shekinah glory of God is going to descend upon us in this powerful, palpable way like it did when he descended on Mount Sinai or when he uh, dwelt in the temple and tabernacle. Um, but at the same time, we do see a general awareness of the work of his, of the Spirit in a person's life. For example, we mentioned this last podcast, last episode, but with, with David, he says, take not your spirit from me. And he seems to have this very clear awareness of the presence of God being with him and in him. And 
I think we see that play out uh, in the New Testament and especially in Acts. Um, the church seems to have an awareness of what the Spirit is doing and how uh, the Spirit is, is, is guiding them. Often we call it the we call it Acts because we think of it as Acts of the Apostles, but you could make just as strong of an argument and perhaps a better argument to call it the, the Acts of the Spirit, the Spirit continuing the work of Christ that began in the world. Or we could say Christ continuing the work he began on earth through the Spirit empowering his body that is the church. Um but so there's this this general awareness now um i i can imagine people listening to all of this and again hearing okay this is this is great this is making sense maybe this is helpful ways that i haven't necessarily thought a- about it before um but th- this is all helpful things but maybe what does this really look like um and we've kind of talked around it but um how do I experience the Spirit in my everyday life? If I want to walk by the Spirit, and I want to, uh, if if I want my body to 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 be the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells, and have an awareness of that, what does that look like? I I think, <clears throat> Jarrett, in my view, it's a realization of the depth of a relationship. It's no longer thinking of the Spirit as some distant, God as some distant force that is observing our lives and somehow uh, participating in it, uh, but from afar. He's actually given us a, a presence within us that is part of Him. Well, that creates a completely different picture of the depth of a relationship, doesn't it? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Why the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Why does he wish that upon the people? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's because he expects the Spirit to be such a rich part of our existence. If we have the right kind of relationship with God, it gives us greater confidence it gives us a greater sense of belonging and uh, relationship with the Father. <clears throat> and the, the, the presence of the Spirit gives us a greater sense of responsibility because now when we're doing something that's disappointing or something that's grievous, it's no longer an infraction of a rule, a law that's written somewhere on a table of stone. It's actually the grieving of a Holy Spirit that is within us. And that seems to me to, to create a depth of relationship that is vital for us to understand if we're going to have a sense of our own security in Christ and with God, and if we're going to have the kind of confidence that we need for daily living so that we can be a source of living water to those around us. Wow, that is really, really beautiful. And transformative. So over the years, you've taught several classes on this very subject. Yes. The spirit versus the flesh class, I know, is something is, is a class that many people here at Lost River have been a part of and have found just extremely helpful in their walk with Christ and being in a transforming relationship with Jesus. And then I'm sure through the years, you've had maybe many other classes, but I know many other conversations with people about these things. And so I'm just curious, as someone who has had these experiences and um, has uh, this accumulative wisdom over the years, seeing this in people's lives, how, how have you seen this good news about the Holy Spirit change people's lives? Well, you credit me too much with wisdom, but um, <laughs> I, I will say that um, after teaching one of those classes, uh, um, a sister approached me and said, um, she said, it really moves me to know that I have grieved the Spirit. Uh, so I, I think this is part of the 
the, the transformation that people go through when they realize they have such a close relationship with God through the Spirit. That now um, there is a new realization of the weight of sin, but also on the positive side of that, there's a new realization of the, uh, the weight of glory uh, connected with having a positive relationship with God in the Spirit. So that's one thing that I have seen definitely and that I have experienced uh, myself in my own life with the, the new realization because I didn't grow up thinking this way. Uh, this, the scriptures have convinced me that this is true, but I didn't grow up believing this, um, that, that my own relationship with God has been enriched by knowing that there is such an intimate presence with me. And I think... Perhaps uh, my teaching reflects more of that um, when I've taught people both at home and abroad. Uh, it has a different impact on people if they if if on one hand it's just head knowledge, just something that you learn about God, and then you do these things and boom, uh, you're a Christian. But that's not really the the story, is it? The story is that. God wants to have a relationship with us. He's, he's looking for a home for his spirit on earth, as he always has from the time the tabernacle was built, looking for a place for his presence to dwell. It was first the tabernacle, then it was the temple, then it was the body of Christ, and now it's his own people are the place of that presence. And so he's looking for a place, again, for his spirit to dwell in the earth. And uh, when we become children of God, we are that, we are that place. Hmm. It reminds me of a quote I heard one time that talked about how this was in relation to the gospel, but I think it is, can be applied to the spirit that we realize we are far more sinful than we ever dared imagine, but far more loved than we ever dared dream. Hmm. It reminds me of Psalm 139, a psalm of David, where he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And there, I don't think he's talking about like he's trying to escape from God. He's, he's just asking that there, there, he's essentially saying, There's nowhere in the universe that I could, that I could flee from your presence, that, that I could run from, from your spirit. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in, in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you're there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. And he's, he says all these things. He says, even, even surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even in the darkness uh, will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for the darkness is as light to you. And so he talks about this, this intimate, close relationship that he has with God, how he cannot flee from his presence. And then he says in verse 23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And there's that invitation for the Spirit to work in our lives. Search the depths of my being and reveal to me the depth of my character, both good and bad, and the the things that I maybe don't even want to know about myself. And he says in verse 24, see if there's any offensive or wrong or sinful way in me. But he ends by saying, and lead me in the way everlasting. So the Spirit works w within us. It's this intimate, close, he, he is, I should say, this intimate, close companion through life and death and there's nowhere we can go that we're not connected with 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 God um, and the spirit uh, works within our heart to show and reveal these things about our nature the depths of our being to to test our heart but going into the darkness of our own heart the recesses of our character, he leads us out in the way everlasting. He shows us the, the way and, and transforms us. 
in the way everlasting. So really beautiful. I was just reminded of, of that passage as you were talking, and it sounds very much like that has been the experience of a lot of people who mm-hmm. have been a part of that spirit versus flesh class, and I can speak to that myself, of uh, there are things that I knew about myself that I did not want to explore when I had no knowledge of the Spirit working in my life. But now that I'm aware of the close and intimate and personal relationship with God through the presence of His Spirit, I know I can go there. I know that I can look at those dark spots on my heart and come face to face with those and know that his disposition and love toward me isn't going to change, that I'm no less loved by looking at the holes in my heart, but that the Spirit will lead me out of that in the way everlasting. And you see that same transformation taking place in the Apostle Paul as you go from Romans chapter 7 to Romans chapter 8. This wonderful chapter that's all about the Holy Spirit and and what he does for us and in us when we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. He talks about sin becoming utterly sinful and how he realized it through sin, how sinful he was, and he ends up by saying, "Who shall, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And his rhetorical answer to that question is, I thank God in Christ Jesus. Then he begins chapter 8, this wonderful chapter, beautiful chapter with some of the um, favorite uh, words um, written in all of the New Testament. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. How is that possible? He goes on to explain those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Well, any other ways that you've seen the Spirit uh, working in people's lives or how the Spirit is, has this understanding of the Spirit has helped you? I've often told people when I'm talking to them about uh, materialism and Darwinism and these kinds of things. People ask me, you know, why are, why do you believe in God? You're a scientist. You should know better sort of, you know, approach. Um, <clears throat> one of the strongest arguments um, is that if you assent to materialism, you're kind of stuck in your, in your, the rut of your sin. It's a very kind of depressing outlook on life. It, it's um, uh, very fatalistic, you know, when you're, it's like, you're like Rover, when you're dead, you're dead all over sort of thing. Um, but when you have a view of the Spirit of God and His being, His presence being with you, you have motivation for enormous transformations that are not available through any other means. Um, The testimonies that you hear from people who have just lived the worst kind of existence and have experienced radical transformation in their lives, they don't tell you some moment that they had where they all of a sudden realized that they were just going to, when the universe came to an end, that they were just going to be gone and vanish forever. They'll talk to you about the hope that they have in Christ because he opened their mind to a different reality, a different view of themselves, taught them that they were no longer slaves to their sin, but that now they were free from the sin that had enslaved them. Uh, and I, I think that transformation is one of the most powerful arguments in favor of the presence of a loving God. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And it reminds me of... A passage that we referenced earlier, but in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uh, seems to combat what sounds so familiar to the modern philosophies of today. 
where in verse 12, sort of in quotations, they say, all things are, are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Uh, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And so you can, you can hear kind of the rationalization that sounds like modern materialism, modern secularism that says, hey, all of this stuff, this material world, it's, it's, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just matter. Um, and, and we can use it and manipulate it however we want for our own appetite to fill our own pleasures, our own desires. We can do whatever. Um, and the, you know, food, food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. It's, it's whatever. And there he's specifically talking about sexuality, which sounds so familiar to, to today. Um, but he says the, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Like, I mean, we could just stop there. Like the, the, this is so beautiful. It's the spiritual and material coming together again. It's God's presence coming back into the temple. It's the Ruach of God filling the world again, um, taking up a, a body, the Lord for the body and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of, of Christ, a, a part of that body? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what a beautiful um, sort of uh, argument, if you will, against the modern materialistic approach to the world, that this material world doesn't matter, that um, we can do just whatever we want. Like what a low view of the world that we're living in. And instead, the Bible has this incredibly high view of both the mind and the body, of the soul, the spirit, and the physical material world, and longs to integrate both of those um, so that we become these, our bodies become these mediators of heaven and earth that extend to the world, that we are the, the temple of God in whom the presence, the spirit of God resides. And so let's glorify God in that. Like that's such a practical, beautiful, powerful teaching um, on, on what the Spirit is doing in us. And this is not the end of the story, but a continuing story as you move into the, the final glorification right. that's spoken of in Revelation, where now he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and God will dwell with them and be their God, and they shall be his people. So there is a, a kind of final entrance into the very presence of God uh, where the Spirit of God fills and, and permeates the heavens, and we become one with that um, eternal presence. Yeah. You can't see right now, but I'm like beaming with a smile because what Darrell just said is so moving and powerful. Um, and yeah, that, that leads into just this very last thing. We, we've talked about like practical ways in which we understand the spirit and how that changes our lives and how we've seen that. But where is this all going? What's the telos? What's the end goal? And it's just like you said, it's that just as the in the beginning, the Ruach was the um, energizing, empowering, life-generating force within the universe, filling and forming all things, so will it be in the end, when the Spirit brings new creation. And there's a beautiful, beautiful prophecy in Isaiah 47 that is exactly about this. When from the temple, there's this trickle of, of water. Ezekiel has this vision. He sees this trickle of water. And as it begins to flow, it gets all the way up to his knees and then his waist, and it gets higher and higher. And eventually he's brought to the bank of this river and he watches, and everywhere it goes, it generates life and fresh vegetation springing up, and eventually it pours into the Dead Sea, bringing everything back to life, and it is essentially living water, just like we talked about in relation to the Spirit before, that Jesus promises this Spirit, this living water that's going to be poured out, 
And what is it doing? The Spirit's doing the same thing that it's always done. It's generating life. And one day that, uh, that will ultimately happen, and we will be the Spirit-embodied people uh, transformed from one degree of glory to another um, and be in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And what a beautiful, beautiful hope that is in a world of increasing despair. Well, thanks so much, Darrell. I always have such a good time uh, talking about all different kinds of things, um, whether it's biblical or otherwise, but uh, especially when we get to talk about Scripture together and about what God is up to in the world and in our lives and within this church and um it's just always um always so encouraging and helpful so yeah you're a great encouragement to many people and uh include myself among them Uh, thank you appreciate you all right thank you very much for for bringing me in this has been a lot of fun